Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. We are so glad you joined us today. This podcast features messages, interviews, and discussions from Radiant Church located in Seneca, South Carolina. For more information about Radiant, visit RadiantChurchSC.com. Here's today's episode. Welcome to Radiant Church. My name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor. We're so glad you could join us today. For wherever you're watching or listening from, if it's your first time joining us, hey, go to RadiantChurchSC.com and click I'm new. If you fill up that short form online for us as a way of saying thanks, we're going to donate $5 to one of the nonprofits that's listed. We have reached the uh, a major turning point in the book of Daniel, and I'm going to get to that really in a moment. Uh, but before I do, just want to let you know that, hey, we're taking a break in our time in Daniel a few weeks weeks from now. Uh, We're going to switch gears in the Easter season and then we'll come back to Daniel over the summer. As a reminder, you can download the message notes on our website and you might want to do that and follow along. So that way when we get back to Daniel this summer, you'll be able to slide right back in and pick up where we left off. All right. (laughs) So uh, I mentioned a moment ago that today marks a a big turning point. And that's because uh, we're in Daniel chapter seven. And so once you cross into Daniel seven, you're dealing with an entirely different book. So what makes Daniel so unique is this division between you know, narratives and stories in the first six chapters and apocalyptic prophecy in the last six chapters. The only other book in the Bible, which by the way has an apocalyptic genre is Revelation. So Daniel is the only book uh, that actually has two different genres fused together. In fact, it's so unique, nobody knew where to put it. So when the Bible was being placed together, um, Christians assigned Daniel will place them on the prophets because of the nature of what we're going to walk into here in, in chapter 7 through 12, the apocalyptic stuff. Jewish rabbis assigned it with the historical writings like 1st and 2nd Kings because Daniel wasn't a prophet. He was a, he was a statesman as you read about in the first six chapters. So as you can see, it's just very different and very unique. Before we go diving headlong into chapter 7, though, and all the apocalyptic visions in the latter half of the book, uh, we got to make sure we take the time to set some ground rules. So think of these rules as lanes that we're going to stay in. And I think this is one of the most important things we can do before walking through chapter 7 through 12. Let me tell you why. Apocalyptic literature, it's very uncertain and highly metaphorical. And so as such, it becomes easy to get obsessive about exact dates and people and places and times and that kind of thing. And when it's handled incorrectly, and it has been for centuries, it can do a lot of damage. So what I'm going to teach you, it may not fall in line with like some of the most famous Christian faces you see on TV or read about in their books, but that's by design. Like I'm not trying to sell you anything, right? I'm not trying to work you into a frenzy. I don't have any skin in the game. So what I want you to do, and I want you to understand, um, is is how to be as objective as possible and in and interpret what's being communicated in a very objective way. So to do that, we have to make sure we stay in our lanes and not go veering off into some dark, uncharted rabbit hole. So let's start with this. Just basic question we should answer. What is apocalyptic prophecy or literature, right? So apocalyptic literature in the biblical sense, it celebrates God's victory over the enemy in the establishment of his kingdom physically, not just spiritually. It's really important uh, forever. And, and it's similar to prophecy, but while all apocalyptic literature is futuristic, not all prophecy is. And that's because prophecy deals with revelation from God to a person who then proclaims that to other people. So it might be futuristic and you know it certainly can be, but it may not always 
always be. In fact, in the New Testament, the idea of prophecy isn't even futuristic at all. It actually deals with preaching and proclaiming the truth of God. So when someone received an apocalyptic revelation, um, it wasn't actually meant to be proclaimed to the masses. And so usually a person, they would receive visions or dreams, and they would receive revelation from a messenger like an angel. And then you know, they would record that. And they weren't meant to be shared in the here and now, but actually in the future. So for example, in Daniel chapter 12, Daniel's told to record these visions and revelations and then seal them until the end. And we'll talk about that in more detail when we get there, but he doesn't share them like a prophet would share his messages. So apocalyptic literature, it's also rich in metaphors and imagery. Why? Well, because metaphors, they, they teach analogy. They attempt, you to, they attempt to explain you know, difficult concepts by relating them to things we would commonly know about. Images, they operate in a similar way. Um, they speak truly and accurately, but not necessarily with precision. That's really important to grasp because there's not a lot of precision in the apocalyptic genre, which is by design. So think the imagery we receive in this type of genre as if you're looking through mist. When it's misty out, I can see shapes, I can see outlines. I may not be able to see fully what's in front of me, but I can see enough to get the idea of like what's ahead. Maybe even to come close enough to, to figure out what really is out there, but I can't see it with absolute certainty and clarity. The mistake a lot of folks make with, with this kind of genre, the, the apocalyptic stuff, is they attempt to claim with absolute certainty they know what lies ahead, but really all they can see is the outline, the shadow. But they're so confident they treat what's a partially known thing as if it's absolute. And that's how you get like all the crazies who predicted, wrongly I might add, the exact return of Christ, the exact rise of the Antichrist, the exact date of the end of the world, you know, that, that, that whole kind of thing. So. Here's our lanes, and we're going to stay in these lanes as we work through Daniel chapter 7 through 12 and all types of apocalyptic literature, including Revelation. So the first lane is this, be cautious, right? Be cautious. We're going to exercise caution when interpreting and trying to make sense of metaphorical visions like what we're going to see here today in chapter 7 and elsewhere. This genre is important for us to study because we're living in this age between the establishment of God's church and the end. So we do need to be, you know, like in the know about things regarding the future, but we can't obsess over them or else it's going to lead us to wild and inaccurate conclusions. We have to keep an open mind or else we might miss something important. If you're familiar with what we're talking about though, here, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Uh, as we walk through these teachings, have an open mind as if it's the first time you've heard them. I promise you it'll change how you view everything if you can do that. Number two, second lane, understand imagery. As I mentioned earlier, there's a high amount of metaphor and imagery in the apocalyptic literatures. And so understand images and metaphors and how they're used to communicate truth um, and, and how that's, that's with imprecision, right? Don't take them as literal. So in fact, very seldom are images like yielding black and white answers. Most of the time, they yield answers that are gray um, in their interpretation. Third lane, understand numbers. Usually... Numbers are used as symbols, like what you'll see in Daniel chapter 9 with the 70 weeks. It's best not to interpret that literally and to be cautious in interpreting what the numbers might actually mean. Now, uh, lane number four, last one, understand context. Try placing yourself in the shoes of somebody like Daniel who's receiving these visions in his day and time and not in our day and time. 
So the first several verses of Daniel 7, they use motifs and images that were common in his day and evoked emotion and feeling of its absolute terror. And it doesn't really do that to us, you know? Like 2,500 years later, we're gonna read what's in there and we're gonna think, all right, what's the big deal? But try to understand things in his day and it'll really bring out something in the text uh, that's really important. So those are the four lanes we're going to stay in as we walk through chapter 7 through 12. And with that in mind, let's move to chapter 7, okay? Now this chapter, it's the most well-known in the apocalyptic section of Daniel. It's also the one that's most quoted and alluded to in the New Testament as well. So verse number 1. Earlier, during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, so right away, we know when this happens, it's, it's going to take place between chapters 4 and 5 of Daniel, between 556 and 550 BC. Daniel had a dream, and he saw visions as he lay in his bed, and he wrote down the dream, and this is what he saw. In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning the surface of a great sea with strong winds blowing from every direction. The four huge beasts then came out of the water, and each different from the others. The first beast was like a lion in eagle's wings. As I watched, its wings were pulled off, and it was left standing with its two hind feet on the ground like a human being and it was given a human mind. And then the third of these strange beasts appeared, and, and, and it looked like a, a leopard, and it had four uh, bird's wings in its back, and it had four heads, and there was great authority given to this beast. And then in my vision that night, I saw a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and, and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from all the other beasts, and it had 10 horns. Verse number eight, as I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared. Uh, three of the first horns were torn out of the, the roots to make room for this horn. And this little horn had, had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that like was boasting arrogantly. Let's stop. Daniel gets this vision during the same year that King Belshazzar begins to act as a king. So if we go back and you watch and listen the teaching on chapter 5, uh, you can learn about how all that kind of stuff happened with Belshazzar. But again, we know the time, between 4 and 5. It's also the same year that Persia comes into its own. So Cyrus merges Media and Persia together and creates this massive army. And starting in that year, they begin to swallow the Middle East. And, and I mean, the timing in this vision, and, and that's just, it's insane to think about how that happens at the same time Daniel gets the vision. And we'll see why in a little bit. He looks out in the sea and, and it's, it's going crazy and the wind's churning and you and I look at that and think well, there's no big deal. It's like a bad horror flick, you know, it's like on a dark and stormy night. But for Daniel, he looks at that and he's filled with dread, you know, it's a big deal to him because Eastern cultures saw the sea as a symbol of chaotic, destructive evil. So numerous creation myths, they got their stories centered around the creation of the world being pitted against the sea. The sea's trying to destroy everything. So evil's thought to have its origins in the seas. Daniel sees the raging waters, the strong winds, and then he sees four horrific beasts rise out of the sea where the evil originates. And, and that makes sense if that's where you think evil comes from, right? These four beasts are just grotesque. They look nothing like God's creation, and that's really the point. 
They're symbols of forces against God and His creation. They're perversions, really, um, of, of that creation. So Daniel would have been repulsed to see how many animals are combined into a single beast. Jews would look at the creation story and they would see how God made each animal according to its kind. You separated the species of plants and animals and you never mixed them, like ever. Which is why you read in the Old Testament that you shouldn't team an ox and a donkey together to plow. Or you shouldn't wear linen and wool clothing at the same time. Everything had to be separate. You never put things together. The big question, I'm sure you, you, many of you would want to know, who are these beasts, right? And what do they represent? So a while back, we're in Daniel chapter 2, and I told you that we would come back to the statue Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about because it was linked to this chapter here in chapter 7. So let's just recall the statue. It had a head of gold. Its chest and arms were of silver. Its belly and thighs were of bronze. Its legs were of iron, and its feet was mixed with iron and clay. So before I get into what they might represent, let's remember our lanes, right? Lane number one, be cautious. Lane number two, understand imagery. So I need to tell you um, that who these beasts represent is not really as important so much as what they represent. And we're going to get to the what here in a little bit. Uh, but the first beast identity is pretty certain. And then from there, it kind of gets less and less certain. And again, that's really the point. Like imagery, imagery is not meant to be precise. The first beast, which alternatively is the head of gold in chapter two, very likely, almost for sure, is Babylon. The wings being pulled off this beast refer to God's act of humbling and then restoring Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. The second beast, arms and chest of silver, could be the Persian Empire. We don't know. It could be. The three ribs um, could be the three major battles over three important kingdoms that cemented Persia as the Middle East superpower. And those kingdoms would be Lydia, then Babylon, and then they, they, they conquered Egypt. The third beast, belly and thighs of bronze, quite possibly could be Alexander the Great's Greek Empire, though I can make a good argument that the fourth beast could be a good fit for that too. Remember, imagery is imprecise, right? When Alexander the Great dies in 323 BC, he doesn't have an heir. And so his generals fight over the empire and four smaller kingdoms, which could be the four heads of the leopard, they come about as a result. Now we're going to talk a lot about Alexander the Great in the last half of Daniel. So we'll, we'll get into more detail later about all of that. The final beast uh, mixed with iron and clay, the feet mixed with iron and clay, could be Rome. That's a hard case, I think, to make. I think it's actually easier to make the case that this fourth beast is symbolic of either a national power that hasn't risen yet or a succession of powers that rise and fall just till the end of time. So I'll talk more about the fourth beast later on, but that's really the who. Let's get to the what, because I think that's the most important part. I don't think these kingdoms are, are very important individually. I think the what is really more important. So uh, the what is they represent fallen humanity, evil in this world, right? Nation after nation rises to power, evil follows with it. And this is destined to continue until God finally comes and just puts an end to everything and establishes his kingdom physically forever. The kingdom of God is not just spiritual. It's, it is very physical as well. Uh, and that's, that's important to understand if we're going to talk about like kind of the end times, right? 
That, that, that leads us to Daniel's vision and, and what he sees next in, in the vision in verse number nine. He, he, he says this, I watched as thrones were put in place and the ancient one sat down to judge. His clothing was white as snow. His hair was like purest wool. And he sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire and a river of fire came pouring out and flowing from his presence. And millions of angels ministered to him and many millions more stood to attend him. And the court began its session and the books were open. Look at verse 11. I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. Remember the horn we saw earlier? I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. The other three beasts, they had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a little while longer. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone else, like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority and honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His, eternal, uh, his role is eternal and it will never end and his kingdom will never be destroyed. Now that's a big difference in scenery. So we go from terrifying, raging sea with horrific beasts to, to this vision of, of heaven, like the actual throne room of heaven. And Daniel sees the ancient one, or as other translations might say, the ancient of days. You might see that in like your NIV Bible, right? Um, taking his judgment seat and opening the books is a clear picture of God. Daniel knows it, knows it right away. He sees God himself. Um, you know, God's not an, an elderly man, but Middle Eastern cultures in his day describe God and other powerful deities as elderly, wise, elegant men, white hair, white clothes, that kind of thing. Uh, and so when he sees this man, he knows, man, this, this is God. This is exactly who he is. And what is God doing? Well, he's judging the beast and notice something else. He immediately destroys the most powerful, most terrifying beast, which is the fourth one. It's this image of God who just no matter how strong and powerful the earthly kingdoms may be, wields ultimate authority. And in an instant, he vanquishes the most evil of the four beasts. Well, the other person Daniel sees coming is riding in the clouds. And Daniel describes him as someone who looks like the Son of Man. And all throughout the Old Testament, God is associated with the clouds. He leads Israel in the Exodus and the clouds by day, Exodus 13. Exodus 19, he descends Mount Sinai in the clouds. Psalm 68, 4, he rides on the clouds. He makes his clouds the chariots, Psalm 104. In Isaiah and Nahum, um, we read that he rides the clouds to fight and dispense judgment. So it's very clear, the person coming on the clouds in the vision is divine, but who is he? <clears throat> so Daniel sees two figures together, both of a divine nature. He knows for sure one is God, but who's the other? Remember our lanes, understand context, that's lane number four. We have the New Testament today. We have Jesus, the Trinity, but Daniel had no idea. There's, there's just one, there's one God, right? Like the concept of the Trinity was not developed yet. So what did Daniel think about when he saw these figures? Well, I think he, he thought about a king, specifically David. Second Samuel chapter seven, God promises to give David a dynasty which will never end. And you think, well, wait a minute, it, it, it did end. Like Judah was conquered by Babylon. There's no king anymore. So what's up with that? Well, it's possible that Daniel in his vision begins to realize, perhaps for the first time, David's dynasty ends with a descendant who is eternal. So what we have here is another early Old Testament passage that points to the coming Messiah or Savior. This is Jesus whom Daniel sees. He just doesn't know it. So in the Gospels, 
Jesus and others use the title Son of Man to refer to his identity as the Messiah. They do it 81 different times. That's more than any other title he gets. If there's any doubt, this is in reference to Christ, look at what happens with the ancient one in verse 14. He gives the Son of Man authority, and with it his kingdom, which never ends. So God's handing power and authority over to Jesus, which is exactly what happens. Matthew 28, 18, what does Christ say? I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth after he rose from the dead. So after watching this scene unfold, uh, man, Daniel, he's, he's filled with fear. He has no idea like what he's seen. There's so much he doesn't understand. He's still in the vision. He's, he's still watching everything. And he approaches somebody, could be an angel, standing next to the throne, and he asks for an explanation. What is all this stuff that I've seen? And he's, he's told the four beasts are kingdoms which will rise in the earth. But in the end, God's kingdom will overcome and rule forever. Now we're going to stop right here. And we're going to pick up the rest of Daniel 7 next week because that's just, just a lot to take in. So what do you do with something like what we just read today? You know, if God wins in the end, does any of this matter? You know, I mean, just let me give you a few reasons why I think it does matter and, and, and why it's important for you to understand all these apocalyptic prophecies, okay? One, you need to be able to recognize the signs of the end. You're not meant to understand everything in great detail or to discover like precisely what each metaphor and image is, but these signs are given to you so you understand the time we have is short. There should be an urgency about how we live. There should be a seriousness to reaching people for Christ because you know, eternity is at stake. Whether you meet your maker in death or you meet him as a returning king, you need to be ready. Two, they serve as reminders God is in control. We have seen this theme all throughout Daniel. We've talked a lot about it last week. It, it continues here in the last half of the book, too. It doesn't go away. In spite of present circumstances, in spite of overwhelming odds, when it looks like it's game over, God comes through. He wins. He's in control. That leads me to the third reason. Apocalyptic prophecy at its core is meant to bring comfort and hope. Because we know God's returning to establish His kingdom, because we know He's in control, when times get rough, when trouble comes, instead of despair and hopelessness, we're to be filled with hope. It should comfort us to know that we're closer to God's eternal reign. These are the signs pointing to the end of evil, the end of sin, the end of pain, the end of darkness, the establishment of an eternal kingdom that has no pain, no suffering, with grace love, hope, and healing. And it paints a picture of ultimate justice. No one escapes God's judgment, not the dictator or the benevolent leader, not the hardworking people or the educated, not the kids or spouses. We're all judged. The difference is those who are in Christ have had their judgment paid in full. But when the end comes, evil finally faces the judgment of God and justice is meted out for good. And we see that in Daniel 7 with the ancient one judging and destroying the fourth beast. You see it again with the coming of the Son of Man. In fact, Daniel chapter 7 is a great picture of two New Testament passages. One that we'll focus on next week is Ephesians 6.12, but the other is Colossians chapter 2. Listen to what Paul writes, Colossians 2.14. He, being Jesus, he canceled the record of charges against us, or our sin, and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them 
on the cross. So we'll explore this a little bit more next week, but at its core, apocalyptic prophecy is about God's victory over the enemy. So Paul, he uses language in Colossians that paints a picture of a Roman military victory. The Romans would parade prisoners of war in like a chain gang-like fashion, completely naked in front of a hostile crowd, a very humiliating thing. They would fall behind the conquering general's chariot. It's the penultimate victory parade you could throw. Well, Jesus defeats the enemy once when he, when he died and rose again. Disarm these guys, man. He's going to do it again, though, for good at the end of, of time. All throughout human history, God's people are told, the Lord will fight for him. But in the end, it is God's victory, not ours. But we get the benefit from that victory because it results in our eternal freedom and the chance to worship and live in the kingdom of God forever. So as the world seems to plunge deeper into chaos and instability, as darkness seems to take more and more ground, be encouraged. Always hope. It means our time is shorter, the coming of Christ is closer, and with it comes a final victory where evil is forever defeated. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for each person who's watching and listening here today. And, and perhaps, Lord, there's, there's those out there who say, God, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I'm right with you. All this talk about the end, it's kind of got me thinking about getting my life on track and getting it right. And I pray for those folks right now, especially. Open their hearts and soften their hearts to what you want to do in and through them. In fact, if that's you right now, here's what I just want to do. I just want to lead you through a prayer, model a prayer for you, so you can say in your own words, that brings you into the kingdom of God. No shame in being ready here if you're worried about that. So it starts off like this. Say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. I'm sorry for my wrong. Forgive me for the things I've done that have violated your standards and gone against you. I'm, I'm asking here today, God, that you would cleanse me of my sin. And I pray that you would save me from the sin in my life. And from this day forward, Lord, I, I'm going to follow you. Jesus, I'm submitting myself to you. You call the shots. You lead me. You take control. I just know I want to be ready for when the end does come. I want to be ready, whether it's in death or you return. I want to make sure that I'm ready and I'm right with you. And so become my Lord and Savior. If you pray that prayer, man, you are. You're a part of the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, we thank you for those who who've said yes today, who've gotten their lives right, who've gotten things on track, and, and they're preparing and getting ready. What a great thing to do is to prepare and get ready. Whether we meet you in death or we meet you as you return, we want to make sure that we're ready. And so I thank you for those who said yes today. God, for those of us who are already Christians out there and we're, we're, we're taking all this in, remind us, Lord, our time is short. Remind us, God, we're, we're getting closer to the end. May that inspire hope in us, God. May that inspire encouragement within us when, when times get tr uh, you know, uh, difficult and troubles come. When the world seems mad and out of control and chaos and instability kind of reign, I pray that we firmly hold tight to this truth that your kingdom is coming, that, God, you're going to reign forever, that you're going to vanquish evil once and for all, and that, Lord, we will live and reign and rule and worship you for all time when you come and establish that kingdom, when we can look forward to that day when you will return for us and establish your kingdom forever and ever. We thank you for who you are and your goodness and grace that in the end, you win. God, you get the final say. You get the victory. And we give you praise for it. We ask all this in your name. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to us, you can do so by emailing us at media at radiantchurchsc.com or visit one of our social accounts on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. We hope you have an amazing rest of your day.